We'd like to welcome you to a new program we're trying out at Cold Steel. We call it the Surgical Companion Series because it's meant to be a more conversational format that outlines and discusses current media events and recent publications in a novel, interesting manner. Our standing members of the Companion are Amir Farouk, Kelly Vogt, Morad Hamid, and myself, with guests to come and go depending on the show. We hope to stimulate respectful and thoughtful conversation and initiatives and are really looking forward to developing it with you. So welcome everyone once again to another companion episode. I'm really excited to do this particular episode uh, because it's it dwells on a lot of different uh, topics, uh, not least of which is the, the little pandemic that we're, we're going through. Um, and I, I'll just start by summarizing the paper that I wanted to get into. Um, and this is the Dan- Danish mask study. And, and many people by this point probably are aware of this uh, study. The lead author on this study was Henning Bundgaard, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. And the senior authors were Christian Torp-Peterson and Casper uh, uh, Iverson. And this was published in Annals of Internal Medicine, on November 18, 2020. So this was uh, a randomized control trial and a really neat kind of topic, a very obviously important topic, which is uh, they were trying to see, the objective of the study was to see whether uh, getting people to wear a mask uh, in in the setting of a uh, area where there was not much mask wearing prevalence, uh, if that made a difference in terms of developing COVID. So just to previous, briefly go over this trial, um, this was a randomized control trial, and participants uh, were inclu- who were included were those over the age of 18 and who spent at least three hours uh, outside of their house. And so they were randomized to either wearing no mask versus uh, wearing a mask whenever they went outside of their home. And uh, it's important to note that this study was conducted at a time when masks were not mandated and less than 5% of people, according to their estimates, were wearing them uh, within Denmark. Um, and and they did have other measures in place like social distancing and, and hand hygiene, uh, hygiene, but masks were not mandated. So they randomized uh, people to uh, uh, either wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, and they were randomized in a one-to-one ratio and stratified in the different regions within uh, Denmark. And uh, they tested everyone uh, with both PCR and nasopharyngeal swab testing at both baseline and at one month. And their, their primary outcome was looking for uh, either one of these three uh, outcomes, either positive results on a nasal swab test, development of positive antibodies, or a hospital-based diagnosis of COVID-19. Now, their results are quite interesting. So they had a total of 17,258 citizens respond to their initial call, which is amazing. 6,000 of, uh, 6,024 of which completed the baseline survey. And they randomized 2,392 to the mass group and 2,470 into the control group. Now it's worth noting that 46% of those in the mass group wore a mask as, as recommended, 47% wore it predominantly, and 7% as not recommended. So clearly, you know, this was truly a study of what people did, uh, sort of quote unquote out in the wild. Uh, and not really like a test tube type uh, 
conditions where, where things were very heavily uh, regulated. This was testing what people actually would do and, and what people actually do uh, in real life. And their results, the bottom line of what the results showed is that the face mask group had a 1.8% uh, positive uh, test uh, testing rate, or they were positive for their primary uh, uh, composite outcome. And the control group was 2.1% with an odds ratio of 0.82 in favor of the mask, and a, but a confidence interval that crossed one. And they did a number of sensitivity analyses uh, to to... Uh, exclude those pa- uh, participants that didn't actually wear a mask, even though they were randomized to the mask group, and uh, they did not s- still find any difference. So, obviously, we'll, there, there's there was a whole f- media fallout from this, but I first want to just delve into the actual study. And my first question, uh, and maybe we'll start with Dr. Vote, is. Um, I wonder what you think sort of at face value as a, as a researcher and someone who's interested in doing research and does lots of research. What do you think about just the, the simple idea of doing this study? Is this a study that you would do? Why or why not? Thanks, Amir. I've also found this study tremendously fascinating. And I would say, I think everybody wanted to do this study because at a time where the data around masks was so controversial and went from the beginning of the pandemic, being told by our public health experts that they weren't useful at all to now being recommended across the world, everybody wants to be the scientist that proves that using high quality methodology. So would I do it? Yes. Is it impossible to do? In my opinion, I think so. It's such a tough subject to tackle with the degree of rigor that's needed to really answer the question that you're looking to answer. And I think from my perspective, you know, one of the key things when I think about this study, and and I know we're going to get into a lot of the methodology, but one of the key things for me is, Um, does this really represent who we want to look at and what else is happening at the same time? And so looking at um, the inclusion criteria, maybe this is a bit too far down the line for you, but looking for me at at who was included and how they found them, um, what I found most interesting was that the recruitment strategy, they got a lot of people but they had to have internet access. They had to be out of their home for three hours a day. So what the first thing I thought when I read the study was, I'm not sure that this is exactly the population we want to target um, because I suspect that many of these people were the ones who were following the other public health measures reasonably well. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point about how they actually selected uh, for these people. And, and you wonder about uh, having a response bias for sure, even though they got 17,000 people, you certainly still wonder about uh, a response bias uh, in terms of people maybe wanting to, uh, who, are, who are proactive or, or interested in, in, uh, in pursuing measures that would protect them from COVID uh, were the ones that actually responded. Um, yeah, they got 17,000 responses and then they only randomized 6,000 and then they only actually finished in, uh, the study was only finished in just over uh like four thousand so right and it, it, they didn't finish all seventeen thousand didn't complete the study totally like you so you wonder like whether, whether people when they actually were faced with the implications or had to you know sit down and actually think about doing the, the study actually backed off and what 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 happened to that other whatever you know eleven thousand people that didn't didn't mm-hmm. randomize uh you know when they actually read the study well, you know it's it would be interesting to find out their perspective but you know 
the challenge here, of course, is that this is just not a simple, easy question to answer, as, as you pointed out. Um, Dr. Ball, uh, you know, how, in your experience, how hard is it to do a study uh, on a topic that's already has very passionate supporters on each side? You know, and I think of, in the surgery world, I think about, you know, for example, antibiotics versus surgery for appendicitis or something that you've written about, which is selective non-operative management for penetrating trauma. Uh, you know, like these are these are controversial subjects. How hard is it as a as a researcher? Uh, to tackle a, a topic that already has very passionate supporters for, for both sides uh, of an argument? Yeah, that's a neat question, Amir. And I, I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, it can be very hard, or I think it can be very easy in some ways. I think the more controversial a topic is, a research topic, the, the tighter your methodology has to be. And at the end of the day, the simpler your question has to be. So... You know, I, I think back to much of the work that myself and Annie Kirkpatrick did about occult pneumothoraces, just as one example. That ended up being about 15 different peer-reviewed publications over 15 years. Um, but the initial question was, what do we do with occult pneumothoraces in this scenario? But it was too complex. There was too many covariates. It was, it was just uh, unmanageable to try and answer that with an RCT up front. So we had to work through that concept. And I think at the end of the day, in that particular example, we did a nice job, you know, to be fair, of answering all of the elements that go into that disease process. The problem probably with, you know, COVID-19 and the mask question is that the urgency to that, to that response is so pressured and so, um, um, so, uh, so hot, maybe uh, to use your word. Um, that it becomes impossible, I think, to try and do it in a in a methodologically rigorous and sequential way. Well, as an editor, you must be seeing like a, a huge influx. And we talked to Dr. Lillamo about this on the podcast as well, that there was just an overwhelming amount of research about COVID. Um, and so, you know, it becomes very difficult, probably even as an editor, uh, and maybe you could comment on that. It's, it becomes very difficult as an editor to... to you know, slow things down enough to actually uh, check and make sure that this is high quality science. Yeah, I think all the journals, all the peer reviewed journals anyway, have noticed the same trend, which is you're exactly right. There was a an explosion of people with commentaries and sort of really basic, uh, maybe low levels unfair, but um, relatively low level quality or methodology science that surrounded it. And then that slowed down a little bit and um, it's following now the more predictable path, a more logical, well-thought-out path uh, research-wise going forward. Um, you know, as you would expect, as, as per many, uh, quote-unquote, hot topics that, that come and go. What was interesting, though, is that um, we found that, you know, I know, again, it wasn't just us, the Canadian Journal of Surgery. I think it was really all journals and talking to other editors. We found that people were particularly... Uh, over upset or, or angry if their COVID paper was rejected uh, compared to really every other topic. That's not to say that, um, you know, authors more or less are not more impatient in 2020 than they probably were a decade ago and, and more aggressive and, and more irritated uh, in those scenarios. But in particular, this topic was, uh, you, could, you could tell people were very passionate about it and wanted to be heard about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. Although this study, 
really had a hard time um, actually finding a home, apparently, according to the, the, the authors. And they submitted it to, we don't know who, but some high, high major journals and, and were, were rejected. Um, Dr. Hamid, uh, my question to you um, is, as someone who sort of thinks as, uh, about the policy side of, of uh, whatever, whatever research you're doing, because it, it directly has implications for your job as, as a uh, division head, do you, do you ever think about policy implications, uh, of a study prior to doing it? Um, you know, like, do you, do you, do you think that you can just do research from a pure scientific curiosity perspective? Or do you uh, think like, well, what impact is this research going to have? Um, it, you know, depending on what the results are. Wow. Amir, thanks for asking that question. Uh, what am I, um, research uh, mentors and um, partners used to say that the job of an academic is to ask questions, uh, you know, think broadly and uh, leave uh, hypothesis generating answers and move on. Um, but I, I could never do that. Uh, every um, every uh, research program I've ever been involved with, I, I always um, uh, wonder how it's going to um, shape policy and what its effect will be in the real world. Uh, so I, I, I think that there is certainly an absolute essential role for blue sky thinking and, and um, the formulation and validation of theories. But um, I think um, uh, uh, personally, uh, the, the, one of the roles of the clinician scientist would be to uh, ask questions that have real world uh, immediacy and application. So I guess the question really here, like, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to sort of think about even before we delve into the study is, is this, is this the type of study that one really should do in, in the sense that no matter what the results are, one could see a scenario where proponents of mask wearing will continue to, uh, want to wear a mask and, and encourage others to do so. And those who don't wear a mask will say, will use this gleefully as, as their, uh, evidence for not wearing a mask. So, Doctor Vote, do you, like I'm going to put the same question to you. Do you think about policy implications before you do research, or is or is that not uh, what you think about? You, you just think about trying to do good science. I'd like to think I think about those things. Um, I, I mean. I think as you're designing research programs, it's key to design a program that is going to have impact beyond, uh, you know, the publication that you're aiming for. Um, I'm not sure I always achieve that, but it's, I think it's certainly important. But that being said, I think the methodology and, and as you're thinking about a new study, designing a study that actually answers the question that you're asking as conclusively as possible, I think is probably even more important because when the science is there and the answers are there, you hope that it's going to be easier for the policy to follow. Not always the case, because as we've seen uh, in other countries and sometimes even in ours, the politics get in the way, but you have a much better leg to stand on if the science is sound. Right. So I think that that's a good tr uh, time to transition to actually digging in a little bit more into the study. Um, and, and Dr. Vogt, you, uh, it sounds like you had some other ideas about sort of the strengths and limitations of the study. In, in your mind, what were sort of the strengths and, and limitations of, of the study itself? 
Well, I think the study, I mean, was what we all or certainly I would hope to achieve, which is a, a relatively pragmatic study, what's actually happening in the real world. And, you know, I'm always a proponent when the question is right for randomized methodology, so that you're balancing both the known and unknown confounding factors, which really is something that can't be done with any of the other study methodologies. So I certainly commend the authors on undertaking a randomized control trial to try to answer this question. And I think, you know, they did a lot of the parts of that very well. I already touched a bit on sort of the participants who were in the study. And I think there is certainly a bias in the way that they uh, identified participants for the study and also the participants who ultimately undertook the study. I think there's a uh, definitely a risk there that we are underrepresenting the many of the patients at risk for marginalization who make up so much of the burden of what we're seeing with COVID these days. And so I do think that is a limitation. And then, uh, you know, in terms of the other limitation, really it's how well did they measure and how well could they co control for the things that might've impacted on this relationship? And, and to me, that's really where we're talking about the use of the other public health measures. So if you have at least from a proof of concept standpoint, if you have a group of people who are perfectly following social distancing and hand washing and all the other public health measures, well, maybe you're not going to see a difference in, in uh, those who are wearing masks and those who aren't. Um, that would be where my, you know, simple mind takes me as we're, as we're thinking about this study. Amir, uh, could I ask you, like, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's easy to criticize um, ambitious clinical trials. And I, I recognize that. Um, but, um, I think beyond sort of the, the prestige of completing an RCT and accomplishing a publication, um, when investigators have a very important responsibility um, to, to protect the public. And um, a trial like this, David Urbach uh, once compared quality improvement measures to like searching for your keys, your drop keys under the streetlight, um, you know, where you can see them. Um, and ignoring like uh, every place they could be that's outside the spotlight. And uh, a trial like this, uh, as Dr. Volk says, um, is confined by its own uh, methods and its its own um, environment. And if it's underpowered or if it's flawed in a major way, that could be a, a great disservice. That might create a semblance of evidence base where there isn't any um, or where there's no generalizability. And it made me wonder, like, if, if you have something that seems sensible and has uh, some theoretical um, validity to it, is it, you have to be very careful, I think, to challenge it. Uh, an example would be like seatbelts. Like, if you study, if you randomize people to wearing seatbelts or not wearing seatbelts, and you study them for a month in a town where there's not too many cars um, and uh, where there's a lot of other safety measures in place, and you find that um, people who wear seatbelts have a slightly uh, better survival, would you conclude that um, seatbelts are useless? I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a concern that if you do this trial, you, you, I mean, you have to do it right and probably scale it better. Yeah, I think that's a, the, that was a fundamental issue. I mean, I, I quite like the idea of doing trials that actually examine what people do in the real world. Like I really like the idea of pragmatic trials because I think, you know, this, the strict conditions of, 
mask wearing versus not mask wearing. Uh, if you know, if you were a hundred percent adherent or you had very strict criteria, that wouldn't really capture what people actually do. But I completely agree about the the fact that this is probably underpowered for uh, the question that they were trying to answer, especially given the fact that uh, you know a, a considerable percentage of their uh, participants never uh, didn't really wear the mask as instructed. You know, 46% uh, were predominantly, it's not clear to me exactly what that means, and 7% didn't wear it as recommended at all. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think you're completely right that it, they're probably underpowered given, you know, that the, the overall posit- um, positive composite outcome was only uh, about 2% or 1.8%. You know, they're probably underpowered to detect a difference uh, at that range. Dr. Ball, what were your thoughts about the sort of the any other strengths or limitations of this paper? I think you guys have, have really hit most of the nails on the head. You know, Morad's comment about seatbelts is fantastic and it echoes so many other things, whether it's helmets or parachutes. And, you know, I for me, I, I come back to two things when I think about this. The, the first is sort of what I touched on before. You know, if you really wanted to look at this, you should probably go to a Walmart in Alberta and and do the trial under under direct inspection. I think it would be that that kind of environment. And I have nothing against Walmart, but you know, that's a that's a ripe environment with with lots of the milieu you're you're looking for. Um, so I, I I think it's almost as as Kelly said initially. You know, it's almost impossible to do this properly in in the way that they've done it. Um, the second thing is that, you know, just to sort of c- come out from the details of it, maybe you're going to go here, but it, it does make me think back to, you know, all of the discussion that's gone on from the very beginning. We all had local and national and, of course, international leaders from various different backgrounds who presented this data initially so with such certainty and such um, uh, intensity that it was so easy to believe and it kept changing and it kept changing. And, you know, I think probably the readers, and, and I don't just mean the, the lay public, I mean, physicians are probably a little bit fatigued at this as well, because I, at least, you know, I, I could be very ignorant, but I still don't get the sense we have a handle on a lot of the issues that surround this, this, uh, this whole experience. I think that's such an important point. And I'll just make two comments on that. One is that, um, if anything, I think there, we need many more uh, rigorous uh, trials to try to answer some of these fundamental questions, right? Like, what are the what is the impact of, for example, closing schools on the rate of uh, uh, of COVID uh, positivity and COVID spread? Uh, and I'm not the first one to propose this. You know, uh, uh, Vinay Prasad, for example, is one person who's been a big proponent of cluster randomized trials to try to answer these types of questions. So I think that is critical that we actually get uh, better studies. And it, it, it's kind of surprising that in, in some ways, despite the huge deluge of all this COVID research, there's been very little, you know, randomized or high quality or rigorous science around any of this. Um, and so, so that's sort of my first comment. And the second comment, I think, Dr. Ball, what you're, what you're getting at, and that's so critical is, is the messaging around this piece. Um, you know, there, there is a nuance to how the messaging is around this whole piece, uh, with, with any topic in science, but it's, it becomes so much more important when every issue is under the microscope and the whole world literally 
is watching uh, for these studies and is e- even going to preprints and, and reading all this stuff. Um, you know, and I think one of the fundamental issues here is is how do we convey uncertainty, which is inherent in science, um, to a public that's looking for definite answers? So maybe I'll, I'll turn to you, Dr. Vogt. Do you think that, you know, scientists or, or public health officials should continue to sort of present things as absolutes, like you must, you should wear a mask, it is definitely helpful? Or do you think we don't give people enough credit and there needs to be more nuance in the way that we present issues? I think that's a fascinating question, and and I definitely don't pretend to be a psychologist, but early in the pandemic, I don't know who to credit for this, but I I read something on social media about um, individuals in the public looking at the healthcare establishment and whether that was public health or whomever um, and saying, you don't know what you're saying because things have changed in your recommendations. But the counter to that in the statement was, and I completely agree with this, it's actually exactly what the scientific method is designed to do. Mm-hmm. And what makes this pandemic different from what we usually do in medicine is that the lay public is watching what we do all the time, which is amass evidence over time and refine our recommendations based on additional evidence emerging. We just don't do a good job of explaining that process because we've never had to really before this, at least not on such a big stage. So I think if we could do a better job of explaining to individuals that this is not a sign of weakness, in fact, in fact, it's a sign of strength in our healthcare infrastructure that we're able to say to people, we're just building on what we're learning. I think we might do a better job, but that's such a hard thing to explain when usually we're so certain. You know, Dr. Hamid, there's been this sort of this mantra that uh, has gone around on, on social media about, quote, unquote, listen, listen to the science. Again, do you think that is that is that the kind of message that we should be uh, promulgating? Or are we just not giving people, uh, you know, the, the nuance that they need? Or maybe, you know, to, to play the devil's advocate or, advocate or to play the other side, you know, how do, how do you do... Uh, policy changes or or ensure sort of adherence to a policy if you sort of present all this uncertainty, uh, especially in an, in a world and we're going to get to this in a second, but in a world where where there's so much misinformation, there's so much so many conspiracy theories, there's so many avenues for uh, you know f- sort of false information to make their way around. H- how do you w- navigate that balance? Amir, we have in BC we have um, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's uh, as you know a rock star and public health. And uh, I read about her that that she, um, uh, and this I think really uh, underscores what Kelly just said, uh, she had uh, respect for the for the public. Um, and um, she w- she had this level of transparency. Um, and I think empathy and that respect and empathy and transparency, I think really captured the trust of the population um, and sort of brought people in for the long haul, uh, she anticipated this would be a long, a long struggle, and that we would be learning along the way. And I think, I think, to me, that seems to be a great approach to, to, to have faith that that people are smart and they understand that that we're trying to make decisions under conditions of uncertainty, and that the science evolves. 
Um, and I think if you if you uh, try to project an aura of certainty, it'll backfire and it'll undermine uh, both science and public policy. Uh, it's kind of like when you run a code or when you run a trauma or you're in a bad situation in the OR. It, I find it's sometimes okay to say, here's what I'm thinking. This could be wrong, but let's let's see what happens and adjust along the way. And I think that really does, that's a, that's a style of leadership that, that really does bring uh, engagement and it, 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 it maximizes the contributions of everybody. I, I really do like your analogy to the operating room and, and this idea that, uh, you know, asking questions or, or making it, inviting people in uh, to be part of your thought process is, is uh, such, so valuable. Uh, but, you, you know, when you have a huge public that, uh, you know, is, is v- very different than sort of a, a group of people that are committed to the same aims and same sort of overall goal, which is to take care of the patient, you know, it, it, it does become sort of a different beast. Dr. Ball, you know, we've had lots of discussions, I think, about this sort of topic, but how do you see... Uh, how do you see us walking that line about conveying the nuance of science while also trying to uh, give people some recommendations that they can hold on to? Yeah, I, I don't know, Amira. I, I'm, um, I think, increasingly overwhelmed by the direction, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, of social media and sort of how we communicate in 2020 and, and potentially in, in many folks' eyes and certainly uh, large uh, swaths, large segments of society, um, the the lack of recognition of expertise and I would argue of, of the scientific method. Um, and even if you don't understand or don't care to understand the scientific method, the conclusion of experts within the scientific method. And I, I, I don't know how to how to necessarily navigate um, that reality um, for a large part of, of society now. So I, I actually don't know how you deliver a message that is not overbearing, that continues, as Morad says, to be humble, um, but to be accurate and granular enough um, from person to person. Of course, this gets really complicated, uh, as you point out, because of social media and just the way that can all play out. Um, I, I, it's worth noting that one of the important aspects to this story uh, with the Danish mask uh, study is that uh, there were two two of the scientists that were uh, that that wrote a piece on this, not not involved with the trial, but two scientists uh, separately wrote a piece uh, on this that was uh, shared on Facebook, and Facebook actually censored it and essentially said. Um, uh, that this, this article was, uh, misleading or that it, the, the facts within this study were, were not true, uh, which is, you know, is, is kind of ironic in the, in the sense that, you know, Twitter and Facebook have put up these, uh, warnings to try to get people to think more critically about the information that's being spread. And, uh, and my sense is that, that, uh, Facebook has now incorrectly labeled this, um, as being false or, uh, or, or, or misinformation. Um, you know, without belaboring this too much, you know, we do have another, uh, really big issue coming up, which is, uh, administering vaccines. And there's already this overwhelming sense of, uh, of a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion around, 
vaccinations. So maybe the, the last thing that I'll ask the three of you is going forward, how do you think that we can increase um, scientific literacy, uh, both both in the medical community and beyond going forward so that I think people can better handle the uncertainty that comes with uh, a changing uh, scientific literature. And uh, maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Ball. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of pro- probably three different parts to that answer. The first is the person that delivers the, the message or the group that delivers that message. They have to be eloquent, as, as we've said, and as Murad initially pointed out, you have to come across as humble, um, a measured, calm, uh, and trustworthy. So the, the deliverer of the message, I think, is critical. And that doesn't necessarily mean all politicians or all physicians or all celebrities or all pro athletes are able to do that. It has to be, um, you know, the best voices amongst us all. The second component would be content. Um, again, you know, as, as Kelly's pointed out so, so beautifully, the scientific method has been playing out with this particular issue at this time as it should, as it's supposed to. And many people have talked about that at a very high level. And it's been interesting to listen to those discussions. Um, so we have to be as accurate as we can be and as granular as we can be um, uh, in terms of the content of the message. And then I think the third thing is a combination of all of it. It's the packaging of it. It's the methodology of how we deliver these messages. So uh, understanding probably how social media works, probably how, you know, backhaul conversations work, um, both, you know, locally, nationally, and of course, internationally. So I, I think you need a, a broad perspective on the world. Um, I know that sounds kitschy, but you know, that's really what would drive those three things in my mind to try and deliver whatever the message is going to be about, you know, vaccines now or the next pandemic or, or whatever it is that is a critical public health issue that we don't necessarily uh, see coming or maybe aren't prepared for. Yeah, you just, you just, you're speaking to the, the need to really build a big team that can really think about uh, all those different aspects and, and how to deliver it. Um, Dr. Hamid, uh, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Amir. I, I, I think in some ways you're really doing it, you know, with these um, these podcasts, these types of formats are a start. Um, you're bringing so much thoughtfulness and um, imagination to um, to public discourse. Cold Steel is, is for a surgical audience, but I think um, this type of format seems to be uh, catching on and... Um, so I know that social media can be used to oversimplify message messages or mislead or um, support um, uh, special interests, but I think it can also be used uh, uh, for thoughtful exploration of ideas. And um, I, I think that method will that that strategy could prevail in the long term. Uh, Dr. Vogt, we'll leave the the last word to you. It's hard to have anything to add after those two great commentaries. The only thing I would say is, in addition to everything that's been said, I think we have to lead by example. We're very privileged to be in a position to 
to critically appraise the literature as it's coming out, to critically appraise the information, at least the scientific information that's being provided to us. And so once we've done that and interpreted it, I think being bold in the decisions we're making for ourselves and those around us and being willing to share that, I think uh, at least we'll capitalize on the small portion of the world that we touch and can potentially influence. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.